Well, tonight we're going to begin a little series of studies uh, that will take us through the prophecy of Isaiah. I, I have to admit, I'm not exactly sure what I mean by little series of studies. We're talking about 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And I think we'll do a lot of combining of chapters as we'll do tonight. I don't know exactly how many, how many weeks we'll be at this, but I saw a, a meme this week that said, by the way, the pastor saw his shadow this week. It'll be six more weeks of the sermon series. And we have about that much more to go through in 2 Thessalonians. I'm not sure if that's prophetic or not. But anyway, we'll work our way through the book of Isaiah. We'll try to take chunks at a time and just try to try to give you an overview. That's what we're trying to do, a general overview, a flyover. There'll be some places, I'm sure, when we get into chapter 40 and we get into chapter 53 and other places where we'll go down and spend some more time there. But just a, a, a general overview tonight. He is the chief of the prophets and his book stands at the beginning of the prophets to, to indicate that as Isaiah sort of the chief of the, the Old Testament prophets. As I said, I don't think that this will be an exhaustive study, but I do think it, it will be an important one. As I try to think about what the theme of the book of Isaiah is, or to try to point that out to you tonight, I have to say it's probably a difficult thing to do because not only of the, the, the length of this book, 66 chapters, but there are so many themes, so many notes that are sounded throughout this prophecy. If you've ever read through the prophecy, you, you know that. There are clear themes of judgment, there are clear themes of redemption, there are historical themes that are sounded throughout this book. But I want to point out how perhaps more than anything else, the majesty and holiness of God is really emphasized in these 66 chapters. The, ma the majesty and the holiness of God is exalted perhaps above everything else in these 66 chapters. I find it interesting to note that Isaiah used the covenant name of God, Yahweh, more than 300 times in this prophecy. Other names for God used over 100 times. He is referred to as the Lord, the Lord Almighty, 10 times. He's called the God of Israel, 25 times. He's called the Redeemer, 13 times. The Lord of hosts, or the Lord Almighty, 46 times. And then just the word God or El or Elohim, translating several Hebrew words or at least two Hebrew words many, many more times. And, and that's why I've chosen sort of that subtitle for this study, Behold Your God. I think it's good enough reason for us to suggest that God, just in general, is the theme of this book. And that's not a Sunday school kid answer. Right? I'm not just saying God or Jesus or Bible. This is a, a, an informed uh, 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 thought here. It's influenced by this, the fact that God is just continually exalted in this book. And I think that's why it would be fitting for us to use Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9 as maybe a theme verse, which says this, Behold your God. Behold your God. That's really what we're going to do tonight and, and in the coming weeks as we work our way through this study is we're going to gaze at the glory of our God as he's revealed to us in this prophecy of Isaiah. And that's what I want to do throughout this time. We want to ask the Lord to make himself more clear, to, to magnify his majesty, to reveal his holiness, that we will be moved by the, the spectacular glory of God as he is revealed to us in this book. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that we're going to try to take the first five chapters tonight. And I'm not doing that just willy-nilly. I didn't just select, well, let me divide this up. It does seem that the first five chapters form a sort of preface or introduction to the prophecy as a whole. It, it serves as an introduction to the broader prophecy. And, and I really do want to encourage you to read the entire five chapters, first five chapters, I'm doubtful that we'll be able to read all of it tonight, but I'm going to introduce parts of it to you uh, this evening. If we're going to understand the prophecy of Isaiah, if we're going to understand this book, 
we have to understand these first five chapters. And in order to do that, I want to point out to you five, or, or rather four facts that we have to understand. Four facts that we have to understand, and they're really introduced to us here in the book of, uh, in these first five chapters. And they're simply this. You need to understand what is happening, what's going on in this prophecy. You need to understand, secondly, who is writing. You need to understand, thirdly, when he is writing. And then fourth, obviously, you need to understand why. So what, who, when, and why. What's happening? Who's writing? When he's writing? And why he is writing? Let me read to you just the first verse of Isaiah chapter 1. And this, this really is our outline. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now stop right there. And I promise we will get through five chapters tonight even though we are only going to take one verse to begin. We need to understand the first fact, the first reality we have to understand is what is happening in this, what's happening in these 66 chapters. And it's told to us there in the very first two words of this verse, the vision of Isaiah, the vision. This same word vision is used to introduce not only the prophecy here of Isaiah, but also the prophecies of Obadiah. It's, it's used to introduce the prophecy of Micah, who is a, a contemporary to Isaiah, and Nahum. And it suggests that Isaiah, what Isaiah is doing here, he's, he's actually seeing these messages. He's seeing, this is something that is revealed, this is a sovereignly, supernaturally revealed message from God to Isaiah or to his people through the prophet Isaiah. This is the vision of Isaiah. Now it's important that you understand. The book of Isaiah is not one consecutive message. It's not like, like I would preach one sermon. It's not what is happening here. Rather what we have are multiple messages over the course of Isaiah's ministry. That have been written down and preserved for us by Isaiah in order to reveal some truth about Almighty God. So that's what's happening here. What's happening is, these are, this is the vision, and isn't it interesting? These are not the visions. It's sort of like the book of Revelation. It's not the revelations, it's one revelation, right? This is the vision. This is something that, that is revealed to Isaiah supernaturally through Isaiah to the people of, of Judah. This is the, the vision of Isaiah. So we understand what's happening. Now, secondly, we have to understand who is writing. And we see the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, let's think about Isaiah for a moment. The name Isaiah in Hebrew just means Yahweh is salvation. God is salvation. We know a little bit about Isaiah just from reading this book. We know that he was married that he was married with children. Rabbinic tradition tells us that Isaiah was martyred by King Manasseh. Some believe that when the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 37 refers to those who've been sawn asunder, who've been sawn in two, that it's referring to Isaiah, that Isaiah, tradition says, that Isaiah was sawn in half with a saw. And that the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews eleven thirty seven 37, is referring to Isaiah when he says that. The church historian Justin Martyr informs us of that. Now, some mostly liberal scholars argue that Isaiah is only the author of part of this, this book. That the rest of it, or at least the other half, if not maybe two other parts of it, would be authored by someone else. This is often the case with liberal scholars when it comes to prophecy. It's certainly the case when it comes to Daniel's prophecy. 
It's the case if you're here on Wednesday evenings when we're going through Zechariah's prophecy. And the reason that liberal scholars do that is because the, of the predictive element, especially of, of Isaiah, the latter half of, of Isaiah, when you get into chapter 40 through 55. There is so much, Isaiah speaks with so much specificity and so much accuracy that they say Isaiah could not possibly be writing this because the things that he said actually took place. So someone else must have been writing it and looking back and not writing prophecy, but rather writing history. Liberal scholars always do that because they always distrust the supernatural element of the Bible. However, there's a great amount of evidence that Isaiah was the author of the entire book, and there's a great amount of attestation to that. The Dead Sea Scrolls have attested, uh, have an attested complete copy of the book of Isaiah, and there's no other early evidence that would be contrary to that, that other than Isaiah himself is the author of the entire book. Jesus Christ, in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, himself gave testimony to the unity of the book of Isaiah. You might know that Isaiah is mentioned more than any other prophet. He's mentioned by name more than any other prophet in the New Testament, 22 times. Uh, John tells us that his ministry at least in some ways, prefigured the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 41, that when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, he was actually seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory of Almighty God. And this book itself details for us the call of ministry, the call to ministry that Isaiah experienced. And we'll see that in two weeks as we spend some time in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. But his call was a unique call to ministry because God assured him that his constant preaching, that his constant warning and pleading with the people would most certainly go unheeded. Imagine that. Imagine that you would receive a call to ministry and this call is to go out and warn the people and plead with them to turn to God and then God says, oh, and by the way, they're not going to listen to a word of it. They're going to be seeing, but they're not going to see. They're going to be hearing, but they're not going to hear. And as it comes to, you know, humanly considering that his ministry was completely and utterly unfruitful because no one would actually listen to to what Isaiah said. Yet Isaiah faithfully, diligently went about this ministry, even uh, realizing that. In addition to this prophecy, Isaiah, as we're still learning who wrote this, Isaiah, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, Isaiah wrote a brief history, a biography of King Hezekiah. Now, we're learning who wrote this letter. He is called Isaiah, but then it says he's the son of Amos, Not Amos, like it would be Amos the prophet, but Amos. Now, that probably indicates, as most people believe, that Isaiah was the son of royalty. He lived in Jerusalem. He had access to the royal court. In fact, some rabbinic tradition claims that Amos, his father, was actually the brother of to Amaziah, who was the king of Judah. So is it possible that, that Isaiah actually had a king and then cousins who served as, as a king of Judah? His ready access to the king, as we see in chapter 7, verse 3, suggested that at the very least he came from a well-known family and well-respected in Judah, if not indicated that the son of Amoz tells us that he was a, in the royal family, as it were. So tells you a little bit about what's happening. There's a vision. Who is writing? Isaiah, the son of Amos. But you need to thirdly understand when this took place. When this took place. And according to our verse, this is in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, the four main kings that he mentions here in Judah. 
what the, now what we're learning here is that Isaiah's life and ministry corresponded with the reigns of these kings in Judah and Jerusalem. Now what that means is that his ministry was what we would call pre-exilic. You say, what does that mean? Well, the fact that his ministry was a pre-exilic ministry means that he lived and served at a time before the 70-year captivity of the people of Judah. You see, Isaiah, remember the 70-year captivity began when Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem and then began taking people like Daniel and his three friends, taking them and, and moving them from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then from Babylon, we'd have the, the Medes and the Persians and, and whatnot. What that means is that he lived and served at a time before that 70 years of captivity happened. So Isaiah prophesied and lived in Judah, in Jerusalem, during that time. He prophesied during the reigns of a man named Uzziah. Uzziah. He reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. And I tell you what, there was great prosperity in Judah when he, when he was reigning. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. But what really stood out, what really stands out, if I'm just kind of overviewing here, what really stands out about Uzziah's reign was the spiritual decline at that time. He presided, I mean, things, there was peace, there was prosperity in Jerusalem, in Judah, but he presided over a time of spiritual decline in, the, the, in Jerusalem and Judah, Judah itself. It culminated with Uzziah taking it upon himself as the king to do the work of the priest, and he burnt altar, or he burnt, burnt incest, yeah, incense on the altar. Then we read about that in 2 Kings chapter 15. That's the one thing that really stands out about Uzziah's reign. Now Jotham was Uzziah's son who actually began reigning before Uzziah actually died. And what we know about Jotham is that he began to reign around 745 B.C., but he oversaw the continuing spiritual decline in Judah, and he began to experience tremendous opposition from northern, his northern enemies, namely Israel, I'll explain that in a minute, and Assyria. Ahaz was next in line. Don't confuse Ahaz with another well-known king, Ahab. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years. Now, this is just all background information. Just kind of listen and think about this as we go through. He was, he, he was 20 years old and reigned for 16 years. One thing stands out about Ahaz. Tragically, tragically, he led Israel to trust in her alliances with other kings instead of trusting in God. And this led, according to, to first, or 2 Kings 16, it led to Ahaz agreeing to allow a heathen altar to be set up in Solomon's temple. And it was during his reign that Assyria brought destruction to the northern kingdom of Israel. You go from Ahaz to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, his reign lasted 29 years. He was a very good king. The Bible tells us in 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, that there was no other king like him. He led spiritual reformation and reform in Israel. Judah experienced amazing deliverance under Hezekiah. And Isaiah was very close to Hezekiah and ministered directly to him in that time period. So you need to keep all of these kings in mind. Because as we move through the prophecy, and you need, you, we're going to read about specific things that were taking place during these specific time periods. And I'll try to point them out to you as, as we go. But let me give you a, a passage of Scripture to write down, maybe at the beginning here, just to familiarize yourself with what happened during these kings. You can write down 2 Kings chapter 16 through 20. If you want to get a flyover idea of what was going on. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse, uh, chapter 16 through 20, 
or 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 33. 2 Kings 16 through 20 or 2 Chronicles 26 through 33. What's happening here, what we have there is the background information of some of the things that went on during the reigns of those kings. What you need to know is that Isaiah served and ministered some 700 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we've made it through all three, first three points pretty quickly. You need to understand what is happening here. You need to understand who is writing and you need to understand when this took place. But the most of our time is going to be spent tonight on understanding why. Why it's being written. And you see it right here in verse 1. It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Very important. It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now I want you to keep this in mind. I, as I look out over you, most of you understand this. You've been around the Scriptures for some time, but let me just remind you, it's very helpful to keep this in mind, that at the time that Isaiah was writing, the land of Israel was actually divided into two kingdoms. There was the north kingdom called Israel, with its capital, Samaria, and then the southern kingdom, Judah, that's who Isaiah is writing to, Judah with its capital of Jerusalem. If you want to find out what happened, why, this, why Israel became divided, why it divided between north and south, you can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 11. Following the foolishness of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, led to the division of Israel, and then all-out idol worship took place in the northern kingdom, and pretty soon those same things would follow in the southern kingdom. Now, all that to say, that at the time that Isaiah is writing, the northern kingdom of Israel was in decline. The Assyrians actually conquered Israel in 722 B.C. But Isaiah is writing specifically for the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. And guess what? Though they hadn't suffered the, the same the same uh, fate as the northern kingdom of Israel, they were only about a hundred years behind. Because in 586 BC, they would fall to Babylon and a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Now that's not to say that Isaiah is not addressing other nations. In fact, he does. Chapters 14 through 21 consist of words brought to other nations. But he is writing primarily to Judah, primarily to Jerusalem in order to bring out at least three, three things. Well, four things. Let me say them. And that's how I'm going to lead you through the first five chapters. The first five chapters give a snapshot of why he's writing or what he's writing to Judah and Jerusalem. First of all, he is writing to bring an accusation against the people of Judah. He's writing to bring an accusation against the people of Jerusalem. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared up and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. What happens here is God is leveling an accusation against the people and He is accusing them, listen, of breaking God's covenant. Now this is really fascinating here because in chapter 1 we basically have a legal hearing that is taking place. It's as if God is leveling this lawsuit against the people of Judah and He calls the heavens and all of the earth to witness the accusation against the people. You've got to be a pretty confident prosecutor to be able to call all of these witnesses to witness the accusation. There, this has got to be a, a, an airtight case, and it is indeed an airtight case, because God says that my children have, in verse 1, rebelled against me. 
Now that word rebelled in verse 2 is a Hebrew word that was used when speaking of a broken treaty. It's the same word that's used in the very last verse of this book. Listen to what it says. And this is chapter 66, verse 24. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. God is leveling an accusation against His people, Judah, through His prophet, Isaiah, saying, you have broken my covenant, you have broken my treaty, you are doing things that animals don't do. Oxen, they don't do that. They're submissive to their masters. Even the stubborn donkey knew its owner and obeyed them. But he says, you people are rebellious to the core. And he's speaking, of course, of the entire nation, but, but really directing his, his words to the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. The one thing that really mattered, he said, is that you know me. Think about Jesus. What does he say? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Jeremiah says, don't glory in anything else, but that you know me, God says. The one thing that really mattered was the one thing they really lacked. They didn't know God. And God is bringing an accusation against these people and he's accusing them of breaking his covenant. But not only is he accusing them of breaking his covenant, he's accusing them of being a sinful people, sinful to the core. Look at verse four. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The central issue, friends, was the sin or the sinfulness of the people. Sin is the issue. Do not miss that. This is repeated throughout the entire book. Sin is the issue. Sin is not called a mistake. It's not called a slip up. It is an intentional defiance against God. You see the words forsaken, despised in verse 4? There is intention that is given here. They didn't just step out of line. They didn't just misspeak. They had an intentional, they were intentionally forsaking and despising their God. And this, friends, what this does is it really sets up the need for redemption, which is primary in this prophecy. The people need to have their sin removed. Look over at chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They needed their sins removed. And the fact that he is accusing them, not only of breaking the, the treaty, not only breaking a covenant, but of being a sinful people, is bringing on consequences. The consequences that the northern kingdom experienced, he says the southern kingdom is soon going to find. Back to chapter 1, verse 5. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faint from soul even to the foot of the foot, even to the head. There is no soundness in it. Bruises, sores, raw wounds, not pressed out, not bound up, not softened with oil. The imagery is similar uh, to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. In fact, the people of God, if you can believe it, in verse 10, are actually called by that name. Verses 9 and 10, they're actually called by the name of Sodom and Gomorrah. And maybe just because of time, I'm not going to go there, but maybe just pencil in there beside verse 9, see Deuteronomy 29, 22 through 28, because God says there, the very things are going to happen. If you disobey me, your land is going to be desolate, burned with fire. People of God are called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's exactly what Moses said would happen in Deuteronomy 29. He is accusing them of being a sinful nation. What kind of a sinful nation? Well, let me just lead you through some of these verses. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. Haughtiness of men shall be humbled. The lofty pride of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. They, he is, they are seen as a proud and lofty people. Same thing over in chapter 5, verse 21. 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You see, he's accusing them of being a sinful people, being proud and lofty. He says in chapter 1, verse 23, their princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Can you imagine political leaders who are rebels and who actually make friends of people who are thieves, who accept bribes? That's what he's saying is going on. Their their leaders are rebellious sinners who oppress the poor. In chapter 2, verse 20, they're called idolatrous. In chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, they're called greedy materialists. All of these woes in chapter 5, just turn there for a moment. Look at chapter 5, verse 8. I'll just read these to you. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, Feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of His hands. Down in verse 18, Woe to those who draw iniquity. This is amazing. They draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. What's the picture there? What he's saying is, they fill up their sin buckets with lies. They take like you would draw up water out of a well. He says they're drawing up their sin with lies. They're just making one uh, 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 sin possible after another with their lies. In verse 19 of chapter 5, they're mocking God. He says, let him be quick, let, his speed, let him speed his work. They're mockers of God. Chapter 5, verse 20, they call evil good and good evil. Again, it's repeated in 23, that, or in 22, that they're heroes of drinking wine. They have drinking parties and and, and they're, 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 they're magnifying their ability to take on alcohol. And, and they have leaders who, who take bribes. I mean, this is a sinful nation. Just read through this. It's a very sinful nation. Not only that, not only is he accusing them of breaking the covenant and of being a sinful people, but he's accusing them of being a, a worshipless people. A rejected people. Let me show you back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. The people are very, very religious. By the way, I always chuckle to myself when I hear somebody tell me, I am a very religious person. As if that matters at all. I'm a very... I am a very religious person. I usually ask those people, oh, where do you go to church? Uh, well, it's that, uh, what is that place? Who's your pastor? Uh, what is his name? You know, look what he says in verse 10. Hear the word of this is of chapter one. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the bulls, blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's saying here, I'm rejecting your religion. Now you can read Numbers chapter 28 and Numbers chapter 29 and how all of these feasts and special ceremonies are, are called on, are listed out for the people to, to, to participate in. But God says, it is nothing to me. I am rejecting rejecting your sacrifices, verse 13. The first part of 13. I'm rejecting your assemblies, the latter part of verse 13. I'm rejecting the monthly appointed feasts. Now look, these people were were diligent. They They were going through with these feasts. They were going through with these ceremonies religiously. They wouldn't miss one bit. They were praying. Verse 15, God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayer. Why? Because Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. God says that all of these things that He prescribed for them to do 
All of these things, he says, are vain and mark this, are actually an abomination to me. Think of the things. If you were to ask, if somebody were to ask you, what is an abomination to the Lord? You would think of lots of moral perversions. You would think of pagan idolatry. But you would seldom think about the religious exercises of God's people. But he says, this is an abomination. This is a stench in my nostril. I am rejecting your sacrifices. I'm rejecting your assemblies. I'm rejecting your monthly appointed feasts. I'm rejecting your prayers. Why? Because you are hypocrites. I will not listen. You're unclean. You're sinful. You're wicked. You're dirty. So why is Isaiah writing? Well, he's writing to bring an accusation against the people, but not only because of that. There's a second reason he's writing. He's writing to call them to repentance. What you see throughout the book of Isaiah, this is back and forth, message of judgment, message of comfort, message of comfort, message of redemption. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 1, verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, he says, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. You see, the people believed that they could live any way they wanted to live so long as they went through the religious rituals. Have you ever met somebody like that? I can do whatever I want to do. I can live like the devil. I can curse like a sailor. I can drink like a fish. I can party like whatever. And as long as I have a Bible, say my prayers, go to church, it doesn't really matter. That's what the people believe. They could live any way they wanted as long as they were going through with the religious rituals. But 116 indicates the need for inner cleansing, which would be evidenced on the outside. Moses spoke of this in Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 26, Deuteronomy 27. They needed to be cleansed. They needed to be cleansed. And what is the only way for this cleansing to take place? Through repentance. That's the point of verse 18. A well-known verse. You've, you've known it before. Maybe you've ever memorized it. The words, let us reason together. That is a word that continues on with this, this theme of legal, legal argumentation. A legal argumentation that's being made. Now what this means is when he says, come let us reason together. It refers to someone who has been so convinced by the accusation leveled against them that they are convinced of their crime. They're convinced of their sin. They can't hide anymore. They can't shade it. They can't lie. They can't make it look better than it really is. They're just, you've had that before where you've been so convicted and so convinced you can feel the blood draining from your face. You feel your tongue hitting your stomach and your stomach hitting your feet when you are convicted to the core. Come, let us reason together. Someone who has been so convinced of their sin. What are they convinced of? They're convinced, and I never realized this before. He says they're convinced that their sins are like scarlet. What in the world is that? We all say it. Lord, our sins are like scarlet. They shall be white as snow. But what does it mean your sins are like scarlet? Your sins are red like blood-stained, blood-spattered murder clothes. This is a guy whose clothing has been seen to be stained with blood, the murderer's blood. And they're, they can't do anything about it. They're convicted. That's me. I did it. And God is calling them through the prophet to come clean, to no longer hide the reality of their sin, but to recognize that they're standing before him with blood stains on them. 
They're clearly guilty. This is not something minor. This is not just a little bit guilty. They are murderers. What can you think of that is worse than that? And he says, I'll provide the cleansing. I'll take away your guilt. The options were clear. Repent and be cleansed and experience blessing or be consumed by the sword. Look at that verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. Why? Because the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is absolutely true. It is absolutely absolute. It's not going to change one bit. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. I think that's interesting that the Lord is the one speaking in the Scriptures. He says at the end of chapter 2, if you just switch over there very quickly, as he's bringing them to repent, he says simply, here's, here's, here's what I want you to do. Stop regarding man. Stop listening to man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Stop listening to man. Listen to God. <laughs> so he's writing. This, this, this prophecy is being written to accuse the people of breaking the covenant, of being sinful, of being rejected, a worshipless people, to call them to repentance. But, he switch back now. It's, it's being written to pronounce judgment being written to pronounce judgment. You see this in chapter 1, verses 21 through 31. You see it in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, and going all the way to the beginning of chapter 4. And you see it all in chapter 5. Let me just give you an, a, a synopsis here. Verse 12 of chapter 2. The Lord of hosts has a day. What day is this? This is the day of the Lord. It's a time when the judgment or wrath of God is being poured out. Now the wrath of God, or the, the day of the Lord has both a near a, and a more general reference, a near more general reference, as well as a far more specific reference. The times of judgment that are experienced here, that God is calling out to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, to the people of Jerusalem, prefigures. They're going to experience a present judgment, and that's going to be unleashed horribly when Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem. Read the book of Lamentations and find out how bad it was. Things I can't even speak of tonight. And he says, that near judgment prefigures a far, a more distant judgment, more severe wrath that is to come. He says in chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, the Lord is entering into judgment against your people. The Lord has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge the peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and the princes of the people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. And again, what I'm saying here is that Isaiah is speaking of that judgment that is to come, that is most near him, which is referring to what took place when Nebuchadnezzar led his ravenous Babylonian army, the army of the Chaldeans, through a rampage through Judah, through Jerusalem. But that very severe judgment only prefigures a more severe judgment on the day of the Lord in which God's wrath is poured out on the whole earth. He's writing to declare judgment, to pronounce judgment on the people. And you can tell, you can already see why the people wouldn't listen. Who's going to listen to a message like that? And then lastly, he's writing to declare a future. This is what makes the book of Isaiah beautiful and somewhat difficult all at once because he's back and forth. Judgment, comfort, wrath, deliverance. 
Look at chapter 2 for a moment. Verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall anyone learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the word of the Lord. And then look over at chapter 4, verse 2. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a, of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm at night. This message of judgment that is so clear and so powerful and so pointed throughout the message of Isaiah is interspersed with the comfort of a future for Israel. And we see this throughout the book. In chapter 4, the branch. Though some take this to refer to the believing remnant, to the surviving remnant, this I think it should be most likely viewed as a messianic title. It's used in that way in Jeremiah chapter 23 and 33 and Zechariah chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter 6, I think it's a reference to the Messiah who will bring forth spiritual fruit. And that's what he keeps doing. He pronounces this sin and, and lays the axe at the root of the tree there in Israel, lays the axe at the, tree, at, at, the, at the root of the vine, and then points to one who is to come. The branch brings up the imagery of the vineyard, which is the house of Israel. He says in chapter 5, verse 7, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. But he's saying that there is a better one to come. A greater one to come. One who is faithful. One who will not uh, turn away from the work of the Lord. One who will not deny the holiness of God. Through the prophet Isaiah... God lays an indisputable charge against His people. He charges them with sin such that even what appears to be righteous in them is nothing more than what? A filthy rag that will bring unimaginable judgment from, from a holy God. And this judgment, as I said before, prefigures that greater judgment to come on the whole world from which men must be saved. And there is only one solution. There is only one solution and that is a redeemer, a better servant who would faithfully do the will of God. He would be the one who would cover the sins of his people for all of eternity and usher them into the presence of Almighty God. And it is Isaiah's incredible privilege to be able to present this one, the suffering servant, so that an Ethiopian eunuch will be driving down the road one day. You, you know a, a eunuch. One who had suffered physical mutilation to, to his sex organs. Confused, no doubt. Deprived of, of that for which God created him. And he says, we read in Acts chapter 8, that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. There's a desert. And he went and arose. He rose and went. 
And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I? He's reading like a sheep. He was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shears are silent. So he opens not his mouth and this and his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. And, Phil, and, and the eunuch says, I, I can't understand that. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about the prophet himself? Or is the prophet talking about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and told him, the good news about Jesus. And the eunuch, upon hearing the good news about Jesus, believed, and at that very moment, commanded his chariot will be stopped, went down into the water, and was baptized as a testimony of his faith in Jesus. And see, what is happening here in the book of Isaiah is, is the road is being paved to present, to lead us to behold our God. To come to the point where we know we need a Savior. We need a Savior. We're wretched, poor, blind, wounded, dirty. But we can be clean. Just like that Ethiopian eunuch must have known. Who's it talking about? The prophet? No. Jesus. So as we go through this uh, prophecy, let's not forget who it's all about. It's about a Savior who is to come. Amen? Let's pray.